the second season of the Truth As I See It podcast. The first season focused on fairly lighthearted stories of discovery and adventure. The second season is a bit darker, and these stories explore some of the dirt that gets caught in between the good times. There will be graphic language at times and descriptions that might not be child-friendly. Consider yourself warned. And thank you for listening. call this kidnapped missionary survival training. It's not really called that, but it's like Fight Club. You're not supposed to talk about it. So for now, that's the name. Lest we forget there are creatures on this earth so vile they outcompete our imaginations at any horror, I have a story for you. I was 13 and I wanted to hang out with the big boys on the big island of Hawaii where we were living at the time. I'd follow them to their favorite surf spots and pester them to take me with them skating in Kona town. And just like I would do to younger kids a few years later, they ditched me at every opportunity. It's the circle of life, really. I was into girls, too. Girls from school, girls from the neighborhood. It was that all-confusing time in a boy's life where there is no up or down, and writing yourself is to live like a monk. Several of my friends smoked a lot of weed to slow things down. I just embraced the heat of the islands, post-puberty, pre-manhood adolescence, in a way that left a deep imprint on me to this day. It was the late 80s. Reagan was on his way out, as were the headiest days of an economic boom that would carry over into the next decade. You'd never know any of that living in Kona, where the sun sets every night like an orange slice slides into the coolness of a tropical drink. Silhouetted palm trees are the backdrop of a luscious green jewel perched on the big island. Silhouetted palm trees are the backdrop of a luscious green jewel perched on the big blue and surrounded by black-lined and moon-like lava beds of an active volcano. When a man called Jim White decided to start up an outdoor wilderness leadership training program under the auspices of the care of missionaries working in tense situations overseas, the older boys signed up immediately. So I did too. The trip started out with a high surf advisory for the North Shore. By the time we arrived at the lookout for Waipio Valley, the sets were closing out across the entire bay. The salty spray rose neatly to our noses way up on the ridge above. We had all of our equipment inspected, and we were allotted different amounts of food to carry down into the valley. I loaded my pack and started walking with the older guys. The road was long, but it was all downhill, and it went quickly. By the time we hit the valley floor, it was late afternoon, and we were instructed to set up camp near the beach. I put my tent up with the help of another guy, and I rolled out my sleeping bag as the huge waves crashed over the bay in front of us. This was not a typical camping trip, and dinner was not your normal affair. To eat, we had to catch and kill a chicken, pluck it, dress it, and cook it. We had only our teammates to help us, and our collective knowledge served to make the experience rather unruly. It was the longest, most difficult meal I have ever had. Exhausted and still rather hungry, we headed for the tents around what we guessed was 10 p.m. We were not allowed to have watches or other amenities. I crawled into my sleeping bag and shut my eyes tight just happy to be with the big kids and holding my own so far. Morning came too soon, as it tends to do when you're sleeping on a volcanic rock with thunderous surf pounding in the distance. I was treated to the most horrific sight I had ever beheld up until that moment in my life. When I opened my eyes, or at least the one that I could open, I saw my other eye protruding from my head like some enormous bug. When my campmates saw it, they nearly threw up at the sight of it. When I touched the bulging spot where my left eye should have been, it was hot to the touch and extremely painful right below the eye itself. 
I got out of my sleeping bag to get one of the leaders, and that's when I saw the culprit. It was about a foot long, and it looked like a segmented armored vehicle in rusted red. Its hundred legs were still, as were the pincers it carried on its rear. Apparently, we had done battle in the middle of the night, and though I had woken victorious, the creature had inflicted its best shot. An old local living in the valley provided some kind of poultice that I wore the rest of the afternoon. The swelling from the centipede sting went down by evening, and I was finally able to open the left eye later that night. I had a tough time getting to my sleeping bag that night, but when I did, I fell immediately to sleep after making sure there were no uninvited guests. Just two hours later, the leaders woke us up to move camp in the middle of the night. No questions were to be asked. We needed to simply pack up quietly and move. We carried all of our gear shared across our packs, and we moved off into the darkness toward the wall of the valley, where a series of switchbacks would take us high up onto the ridge and eventually down into a series of valleys that run about 11 miles along the north shore of the Big Island. The Waipio stream was quiet and running wide into the mouth of the bay, and we were able to cross quite easily, only wetting our clothes up to our hips. The military clothing we wore dried quickly as we hiked into the coolness of the rainforest hanging down on the valley from above. At some point, we entered a frightening ironwood grove that reminded me of California's redwoods, albeit without the majesty. We were told to make camp there with the warning that ironwoods carry many scorpions. We were told to check our bags for bugs before we got in. I did not sleep that night, imagining my world crawling with vile, stinging creatures. It was still cool in the morning when we woke up. We ate some stuff, but we had lost our appetites in the coolness of morning, and we knew we were hiking again. We hiked through several valleys that day. Some of the guys estimated we did around 11 miles by the end of the day. It was largely uneventful. I remember the sheer beauty of those remote valleys. The beaches were pristine, and we only ever saw one other sign of a human being. And it wasn't a good sign, either. They were stacked on a rock wall about four valleys over from Waipio, somewhere deep in the Kohala Forest Reserve, and they sent chills up our spines. Whether they were voodoo dolls or just related to dark magic, they were ritualistic and they were set up in a very specific manner. The leaders were worried about these artifacts, and seeing no other humans, we moved off toward the beach, where they let us enjoy the sun and the untamed blue ocean for a couple of hours. As I wandered around the beach, I found some rocks with tide pools that looked interesting to explore. In the high afternoon sun, something glinted and caught my eye. I saw what looked to be glass, and I pushed back the seaweed to reveal an old Japanese fishing net glass float. It was green and ancient by the looks of it, bearing none of the signs of modern glass blowing. I took it to the leaders of our expedition, and they agreed that it was ancient and extremely lucky, according to local Hawaiian legend. Islanders had been finding these floats for centuries, and they viewed them as auspicious. I was allowed to keep the glass float, as it couldn't be considered part of the natural landscape. We were permitted no other souvenirs, as it is highly unadvisable to remove natural elements in the Hawaiian Islands, even if you do not believe in the gods the ancient Hawaiians worshipped. We abandoned plans to camp at this end of the forest reserve in light of the voodoo dolls, and instead made our way back along the trail to a high spot where we hunted feral pigs for a day. I was happy enough to leave the heavy work to the older guys that day. Pig hunting is rough work, and often very dangerous. Rain set in later that evening, and we were drenched for the next three days. I do not even remember being any wetter than that. With all that rain pounding the North Shore, Mr. White decided to move us back into Waipio Valley for the remaining two days. We hiked late into the night and spent the night back in the Ironwoods at the top of the ridge overlooking the Valley of Kings. It was cold in the soaking rain, and I looked forward to hiking down into Waipio the next day just to feel the warmth of the valley floor again. 
The deluge continued, and by the time we made it to the floor in a grim and steady downpour, the river had swollen to ten times its normal size. The turbulent brown water carried branches and even small trees with it as it spilled its wide mouth into the Pacific Ocean. We could not cross upstream, where the river was deeper and infinitely more dangerous. We had to cross at the mouth, where the river was wider but shallower, and we had to do it before we could get swept into these mighty breakers just a few hundred yards away. Someone decided to form us into lines, each person holding the hand of the other in chains that would help us secure our footing as we crossed. I was last on the second chain, and we were steered by a big Hawaiian kid named Pomai. I could feel him pulling us through the hand of the girl in front of me, and I felt like I was crushing her hand trying to hang on as the current carried me downstream. About halfway across, she simply let go and clutched at the person in front of her. I lost my footing and went under. Panicking, I let go of my backpack and let it drift away. With my boots on and my heavy clothes, it was hard to tread water, and I felt as if I were on a water ride heading toward the falling point. I watched the chain move farther away from me, and I tried to swim for the shore, but every time I picked my legs up, I was swept swiftly downstream. That's when I saw the big Hawaiian kid jump in slightly ahead of me. He grabbed at my shirt and heaved me toward the shore, his taller frame anchored firmly in the mud of the river bottom. I laid there on the beach for a while, as one does in those marooning movies you often see, after someone has been lashed about by a violent body of water. Everything was gone, but I was alive. I thanked Pomai profusely, but he said it wasn't as big a deal as I was making it out to be. When we set up camp, I had no pack, no sleeping bag, and my portion of the team's food was gone. The leaders explained that I would need to learn to harvest what was around me. I picked what fruit I could, but after a day of eating giant citrus fruit and passion fruit, I needed something starchy, or at least with protein. An old taro farmer had me help him in his taro beds for an afternoon. He paid me by making up some fried taro chips. Knowing I needed protein, he took two large chips and smashed a huge spider between them and dunked them in the hot oil for a few seconds. I ate the crunchy spider taco gladly, for once in my life forgetting my enmity with the creatures. On the last night, we feasted with the local Hawaiian community in Waipio Valley. We ate rice and pig cooked in the ground. We ate taro ground into the sticky paste islanders love called poi. And I finally realized that I was happy doing the things I wanted to do. And somehow, I grew up during that week-long trip and decided that when I became a big kid, I could do the things that they did then and not worry so much about it now. Now I just enjoy being me at the age I am. Survival is conquering extenuating circumstances. Life is what gives you the experience to be able to do that. This podcast was produced by Akamafia Productions. Any relationship to real events or people is probably not a coincidence. These words and memories are my own and may contain traces of the truth. Music, as always, by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. You can catch the entire first season of the Truth As I See It podcast on SoundCloud. <laughs>